The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Popes Against the Modern Errors on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. In this episode, we will be discussing Pascendi Dominici Gregis, an encyclical written by Pope St. Pius X at the beginning of the 20th century. The encyclical focused on the doctrines of the modernists. This encyclical is as much prophecy as anything else. It is the defining encyclical of Pope St. Pius X's pontificate, and it, perhaps more than any other, should be the reference text of Catholics everywhere. For these reasons, I personally am more than a little nervous about covering it, as its weight is so enormous, but thankfully we have his lordship here to guide us through the prescient points. If you are still confused by the antics of the hierarchy of the Vatican II sect, then please settle down and prepare to have all of the fundamental principles of the current crisis explained. Okay, my lord, I'd like to start the show by talking around two points. First of all, the person of Pope St. Pius X himself and the historical context in the church in which this encyclical was written. Could you speak to that for us, please? St. Pius X was extraordinary for many, many reasons. One of the first is that he was a peasant. (laughs) Most of the uh, popes, uh, I think all of the 19th century popes, came from the aristocracy. And it was just normal that people come from the aristocracy those who achieved the papacy, the reason being that aristocracy were the educated classes. It was hard to get an education if you were a farm boy or a shepherd or something like that, although Sixtus V in the 16th century was a shepherd. Uh, It happens, but it's not usual. It's just natural that people from the upper classes rise to, to those positions of authority. But he was a farm boy, a, a poor boy. I saw his house in, in Riese in Italy, and uh, it was a very, very simple place. And actually, it had been fixed up somewhat because when he became bishop, he put a, a tile floor in for his mother uh, in the kitchen when he became bishop of Mantua. So that's a significant thing because aristocrats are always concerned about other aristocrats and how they're seen, they are very tempered in in how they carry out things. 
Whereas a peasant farm boy is not tempered about how he's going about something and really doesn't care about what anybody thinks. That, I think, is a big factor in Pius X, that he really didn't care what anybody thought and pushed through this repression of modernism with, a, with strength and fortitude and against the warnings of many bishops who said he was going too far and, and going too hard. So he understood completely the, the problem. The second thing is that he grew up in a very pious Catholic area, uh, Venetia. Uh, Venice itself was not too terribly Catholic, uh, a lot of piety, but uh, they had given the church a lot of trouble. But the Venetian countryside was a, a pious place, so he got a great soaking in uh, Catholicism uh, in that area. He was born in the 1830s, and then as a, as a young man and as, as a young priest, he lived through all of the horrors of the 19th century. He saw the destruction of the Catholic Church, practically, in Italy uh, at the hands of the Freemasons, the, the House of Savoy, the unification of Italy, uh, all of the horrid things that happened all over Italy, where, where this peninsula that is practically consecrated to God by its saints and by its churches and all, was, was just turned into a, a secular Freemasonic republic. He saw all that. He lived through it. Uh, so he had no illusions about what the modern world was about. Nobody had to tell him anything. Uh, and then he was uh, a prelate uh, under Pius IX and uh, Leo XIII, and he taught in a, a seminary. He had a, a parish life. He was very well-rounded from the point of view of his his ecclesiastical career, uh, as it is called. It was, he had he saw everything. Uh, he was a canon. He was he uh, that means somebody who was a, an assistant to the bishop of of the diocese of Treviso. And uh, so his credentials are perfect, might say. He was always known for piety. Leo XIII called him the jewel of the College of Cardinals because of his piety. He was also known for his intransigent. When he was uh, the Patriarch of Venice, he would not permit Catholics to go to the art exhibition because there were dirty pictures in it. And uh, uh, various other things uh, he did as the, uh, the Bishop of Mantua, too. He would not permit some dignitary from the Italian government wanted to come and first pay a visit to the bishop and then pay a visit to the synagogue. And he said, if you go to the synagogue, you're not coming here. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and in fact, nothing happened. And neither the synagogue nor the, nor the church got the visit. Uh, the cathedral at the time. So, I mean, he had no trouble offending people and, and stepping on toes. I think that's a very important aspect of his character. So, very learned, knew his sacred theology very deeply, and was thoroughly anti modern. Totally. I mean, down to the marrow of his bones, totally anti modern and uh, uncompromising to the fullest. And so you have a, a powerhouse there. You have somebody that has all the credentials of nature, so to speak, all the credentials of career, and then also all the credentials of faith and piety put together 
and a saint. So it's like a rocket ship. <laughs> you know, it's a, just exactly what that age needed uh, and what our age needs now. <laughs> Uh, we need exactly someone like him. Uh, also, the peasant background, so that he's not afraid to offend people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it all just went into a big mix and came out wonderful. <laughs> and that's what we got, uh, mostly by accident in 1903, because uh, Cardinal Rapola, who was the protégé, we might say, of Leo XIII, was favored to win, and actually the vote would have gone to him the very next day, that is, before the Austrian cardinal intervened and exercised the veto of the Austrian emperor, who was the uh, considered to be the successor of the Holy Roman Emperor. And that had nothing to do with the supposed Freemasonry of Rampola, which is highly disputed. It had to do with the fact that Rampola was very, very pro- France in his dealings, and the Austrians traditionally were very anti-France, and this had always been a consideration in the election of popes, even from the 18th century. Well, France and Austria were always at odds, uh, so they didn't want somebody that was so pro-French. That was the reason for the veto. And so, because the cardinals did not want to emerge with a a doubtful election where somebody could say, well, the veto was exercised and we're not sure that this person is the Pope. They moved away from Rampola right away and they started looking and, and figured, well, we can't go wrong with Sarto. Uh, and so they, they uh, moved to him and elected Cardinal Sarto. That's who he is. And he comes into a church that is deeply infected with modernists. Now, now we have to talk about the modernists. Since the 18th century, even before, there, there, has, uh, there has always existed a, a mind of, of among Catholics and even non-Catholics that the Catholic Church ought to be transformed. It would be something like keeping the same building putting different people in it. You see that where you have a an institutional continuity, everything looks the same and everything's fine. But the gospel that is being preached, the doctrines and liturgy and all of the other disciplines are quite different and they are uh, adapted to the modern world. See that uh, this is a constant theme if you look at the 19th century that the Catholic Church is living in the Middle Ages. It will never, this is the criticism of modern people in the 19th century. Uh, it has to break out of the Middle Ages. It will die unless it adapts itself to the modern world and uh, uh, accepts modern philosophy and, and uh, various other things. Uh, it has to, has to uh, just shed all of this medieval Renaissance and Baroque uh, uh, dogmas and, and attitudes and even trappings. It has to become modern. And the, the principal way in which it does that is through its doctrines. Uh, so you had the emergence in the late 19th century of biblical modernists, that is, people who were uh, 
essentially saying that sacred scripture is fairy tales. Uh, they wouldn't say it like that. They would say, uh, well, you know, they're telling a story, and the story is allegorical, and uh, you know, they may have made a few mistakes here and there, but it's basically correct. Uh, things like that, th- th- these very subtle ways of destroying the authority of sacred scripture. That's how it started. And Leo XIII issued Providentissimus Deus, Pius XII issued one too, uh, on scripture studies, and defined very clearly what must be held concerning sacred scripture. And that, that's a wonderful encyclical that Leo XIII published. However, that did not do the job. They continued to multiply. They knew each other. It was a type of club. It was especially active in northern Italy. But other places in Europe, it was very strong in France. There was a presence of it in England. It took the form of liberalism in the United States, although the United States was not as affected as as Europe was, and particularly France. There were, if you would assign one country where it was the strongest, uh, it was France. And Leo XIII, I read, was hesitant to repress them because Leo XIII was a strong intellectual, and he had this feeling that, well, they're, they're a little off the track, but I don't want to, you know, I have such a respect for their scholarship, and yes, they did have, you know, they were scholarly men in most cases. Uh, I don't want to ruin their scholarship. So he he didn't take it as seriously as he should have. And so he let them go. So uh, in 1903, uh, Pius X arrives and the rats are on the deck. In other words, there's a lot of um, modernists in seminaries and in in other places, influential places, and uh, he uh, needs to do something about it. So that's really the first paragraph of this, is that the first paragraph essentially says, up to now I've been nice. (laughs) I've tried to to pull these people back to where they should be by, by being nice to them, but that hasn't worked, so now I'm going to take the gloves off. Uh, that's, you know, that's a translation of what he says. He says it much more elegantly than that, but that's, that's what he means. And that's a Pascendi Dominici Gregius, that uh, one of the translations, one of the primary obligations assigned by Christ to the office divinely committed to us of feeding the Lord's flock. That's what Pascendi Dominici Gregius means, feeding the Lord's flock, is that of guarding with the greatest vigilance the deposit of faith delivered to the saints. I mean, what, what a beautiful thing. He is so aware of his first duty, that, that guarding of the deposit of faith, rejecting, he says, the profane novelties of words and the gainsaying of knowledge falsely so-called. That's a quote from St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then he says, there was never been a, there has never been a time when this watchfulness of the supreme pastor was not necessary to the Catholic body, and and he says that the church has always been assailed by heresies, and that the that's the very purpose of the papacy is to preserve the papacy uh, to, to preserve the the doctrine. Okay, so he, that that's his. Uh, and then he says that he's been nice up to now, but he can't really do that anymore. And he says in paragraph two that it's very serious because 
the partisans of error are sought not only among the church's open enemies, but what is to be most dreaded and deplored in her very bosom, and are the more mischievous, the less they keep in the open. That was the problem. You see, uh, it wasn't enough simply to issue an encyclical with the expectation that everyone would nod their heads and and do uh, what is right. These people were revolutionaries. They couldn't care less about the encyclical. They, you know, they they had uh, contempt for the authority of the Pope. So this means that he has to go in with a crowbar. Do you say that mm-hmm. in England? Uh, a yeah. crowbar and and get these people out and uh, expose them and and show the world who they are and and show Catholics that they cannot listen to them. So you know he's really. Uh, declaring war on these people, and war he would give them uh, all during his pontificate. This is the, the main thrust of Pius X's pontificate. He did many, many other things. Uh, he, he is a pivotal pope in the history of the Church. But this is the main thing that he did. This was mostly on his mind, was to get the modernists out of the Church. Uh, and that, that's what this encyclical is all about. This encyclical had a tremendous impact. It was it's just like a, a, a bomb that went off in the church. <laughs> and all of these modernists were just uh, you know holding their heads the next day. It was just, oh my goodness, what are we going to do about this? And uh it, it just uh, it really, really uh, shocked a lot of people and particularly the modernists. Uh and of course they attacked it as being uh, not intellectual enough, and he doesn't understand, and all of this nonsense, but he, he understood perfectly, and really gave us a definition of something that is actually very obscure, you know, to say a modernist. What is a modernist? It's not as if you can say, well, he, he believes this, or well, he believes that, or well, he denies that, or well, he denies this. A modernist is a person who in effect, denies everything because he has an attitude toward dogma which rots out every dogma of the Catholic Church. Just like malware gets into your computer and destroys everything or could destroy everything, you know. So also, this is an attitude, a, a mindset that gets into every doctrine and sucks out of the, the dogma or the doctrine the uh, all of its teeth, we might say, all of its its importance and its power because we'll see that that it makes doctrine or dogma merely uh, the effect of a religious experience, that's all. So that's just a little introduction to the encyclical. So in, in paragraph one, to, in, in his typical style, he talks very directly, and in case anybody is in any doubt whatsoever, he does say that these modernists, their ultimate aim is to, over, and I quote, overthrow utterly Christ's kingdom itself. And he describes him in paragraph three as the most pernicious of all the adversaries of the church. So he's not yeah. he's not messing about. He's getting right down to it straight away. And in paragraph four, that's his first use of the word modernist. That's when he actually begins to describe what they are. And he goes on to, to, to talk about them in terms of the different roles and then talks about agnosticism uh, in paragraph six. Could you could you comment on what he what he writes in those paragraphs? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, the the fact that he says that this is the 
the worst thing that the church has ever faced is very significant. The church has faced terrible monsters of heresy in its past. It has gone from, from one monster to the other. Uh, and uh, But that, for him to say that is very, very significant, and it should alert us to the gravity of what we're facing today. But this is, Vatican II is a triumph uh, of these people. There's no possible way to connect Vatican II with Catholicism. You must throw Pius X in the trash if you're going to try to say that Vatican II is Roman Catholicism. So that's an important point just before we get on to agnosticism. With all the heretics, it was it was very clear who the enemy was. The heretics were outside of the church and then there were Catholics. But this is something yes. different. Yes. These are rats that are crawling around in the church and disguising themselves as Catholics. And in fact, they're not Catholics at all. And that is the problem. And he understood that as something that his predecessor did not understand, uh, that these people were extremely pernicious. And if given the opportunity, they they would destroy the Catholic Church. He says that in this encyclical, uh, that you know, if the reforms of these people ever take place, it will just be the destruction of Catholicism. Of course, those are prophetic words. I was just going to say, my Lord, he says in paragraph three, there is no part of Catholic truth in which they hold their hand, none that they do not strive to corrupt. There is no conclusion of any kind from which they shrink or which they do not thrust forward with prayer, tenacity and assurance. And they carry on with the greatest activity. They possess, as a rule, a reputation for the strictest morality, and they disdain all authority and brook no restraint. He's not yes. not mincing his words. No, and he's saying that they have a, a very nice appearance, that they seem uh, totally acceptable, but in fact they are evil agents. I mean, it's the worst possible thing that could happen to the church, and it is indicative of diabolical inspiration. Uh, it, it, you know that that you could have people that would do such a thing as this. Uh, and so people have to understand that about this error, that this is not just a question of misguided good Catholics, you know, people who who want to uh, change the church a little bit to make it more appealing to the modern world. These people are, are set on an evil course, and we have seen their evil course in, in all of our life, lifetimes, uh, the, the destruction of Catholicism in, in all of its institutions. Catholicism is reduced to uh, handfuls of people in, in in every country, you know, a few places here and there where you can get the mass, and with small groups. You know, this enormous institution is now reduced to to this this tiny handful in comparison to what it was before the council. Now, sure, there's a lot of people who call themselves Catholics and who are baptized and all, but they adhere to all of this modernism and and for that they cannot be identified with the catholic church uh, at least objectively i you know nobody's judging their consciences but uh objectively they cannot be associated with the catholic church now talking about agnosticism agnosticism the way he means it here is not what uh is commonly thought of uh 
uh, as agnosticism in you know common parlance. He means it here in a purely philosophical sense, and that is the inability of the mind to know things outside of itself, so that what we know is the effect of our internal categories. Uh, that is, the, we do not hook up with objective reality, but rather we have experiences and our mind organizes these experiences in such a way that we think this or we think that. That's the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. And its effect is, of course, that if we cannot know objective reality, we cannot possibly reason to the existence of God, because all of the proofs of the existence of God are based on creatures, that we know the essences of creatures, we, we, well, we see that something exists, and we must conclude to the fact that only that thing could only exist if it's caused by something that possesses existence by its very nature. See, all, all of the proofs are based essentially on that. That if there's anything in creatures that is good, it must be caused by something which has the good completely. So if you cannot know reality, and if your mind is the source of your reality and what you think, it all comes from your head, then all of the proofs of the existence of God collapse. So that makes the existence of God something that is not dependent upon reason, but it is going to be dependent upon your personal experience. See, so there's a negative side of modernism, which is agnosticism, and a positive side, we might say, which is this immanentism, which we'll speak of later, which is that we all have an experience of God and uh, we all see him in our own way. See, so that, that's, those are the two ingredients of modernism. So on the one hand, he'll say, they sound like rationalists, you know, people who deny the faith, they just call everything into question, do not believe in, the, in sacred scripture and so forth. That's their rationalist side. But then on the other side, he'll say, oh, there's this, this pious, all this piety, and they can give a sermon, the most beautiful sermons, and sound so, so pious. That's their, their uh, imminentist side, that they have a, uh, uh, an experience of God, and they're telling you about their experience of God. We see this in Bergoglio. He says faith is uh, a personal encounter with Jesus. That's pure modernism. Unadulterated yeah. Straight out of the box, modernism, <laughs> and the uh, he he shows modernism all, all the time. I mean, I, I don't want to get into him in this one, but the uh, he he definitely uh, shows that. So that's paragraph six. You see, that's he says we begin then with the philosopher, and modernists place the foundation of religious philosophy in that doctrine which is commonly called agnosticism. And he says, according to this teaching, human reason is confined entirely within the field of phenomena, that means appearances, that is to say, to things that appear, and in the manner in which they appear, and has neither the right nor the power to overstep these limits. That is pure Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher 
who lived uh, in the latter part of the 18th century, died in the early part of the 19th century. He was one of the greats, quote-unquote, of the Enlightenment. And uh, he, what he wanted to do was to solve the problem that David Hume, who was an English philosopher, made. And that is, David Hume said, oh, all we know is his uh, appearances. We just, uh, we, we don't know if there's causality. We don't know that he said, for example, his own, his own uh, um, uh, example was the billiard ball. When we see one billiard ball hit another, we don't know that it has caused the movement of the other. We just see that something happened. <laughs> that was David Hume. Yes, there's no, there's no, and it was just that happened. Even though you could repeat it and analyze it and and figure out all the forces involved, it no, it just happens. So <laughs> that made skeptics out of everybody, and and the scientific world said we can't deal with this. We have to have some system which preserves some certitude about what we're studying, what we're saying about the physical world. So Kant came up with that system to save philosophy and to give something to the scientific world. And that is, yes, we only know appearances, so he concedes that to David Hume, but it is our mind that cooks up the rest of what we know. So what might be true for me may not be true for you, because my mind could organize the appearances in one way, and your mind organize it in another way. So, for example, Kant says that causality is a category of the mind. So we see the billiard ball hit the other billiard ball. It goes perfectly into the pocket, uh, and that's all we see. And then, bingo, our minds come up with causality. So we say that it caused it. The one caused the other. And that does not come from anything in reality, but it comes from our heads. See, that, that is Immanuel Kant. Yes, I know it sounds perfectly absurd, crazy. So, but so causality, Kant is, the, so causality is not an, object, an objective reality, something that really exists. It's just no, all in the mind. it's not objective. It's in your mind. It's a category. Something like the post office, they probably don't do it anymore, but in uh, olden times. They would put a letter in the box, and this one here, this one here. Uh, so you, you get phenomena, you get appearances, and you put them in certain boxes in your mind, and uh, those are the categories. But you see, I might put a letter in one box, you might put it in another. So what, what is true for me is maybe not true for you. Truth in the, in the church's philosophy is the conformity of the mind to the object. But in Kant's philosophy, it's the conformity of the mind to its own categories. You see the difference. Yeah. And, and uh, the, so therefore, truth becomes totally subjective. It's whatever you think it is, and that's it. Uh, and, and the only thing we have in common is that we have the same experiences. That's it. But what we do with those in our minds is a totally other thing. So the modernists, all of these modernists are Kantians. That means they follow the, the uh, philosophy of Kant. And Kant is the Aquinas of modern philosophy. He is the god of modern philosophy. Uh, in, in universities today, and, and uh, you, know, you, you can't even possibly question him. He is the one that, that really did it. Uh, the 19th century was very much infected with this 
he's setting that down in paragraph six as what we might call the negative element in their system. That is, we, we cannot know anything objective. And certainly we can't reason to the uh, existence of God. And that tenet is contrary to the definition of the First Vatican Council in 1870, which, which defined that we can know the existence of God through reason, that is, by deducing his existence from creatures. And, and it quotes St. Paul to that effect. Just to read some, something from number six, it may be asked, in what way do the modernists contrive to make the transition from agnosticism, which is a state of pure nescience, that means I don't know, to scientific and historic atheism, which is a doctrine of positive denial, and consequently by what legitimate process of reasoning they proceed from the fact of ignorance as to whether God has in fact intervened in the history of, human, of the human race or not to explain this history, uh, leaving God out altogether as if he really had not intervened. So that's number six. Number seven, he, he says, we've talked about the negative part. He says the positive part is what they call vital imminence uh, or imminentism. It's the same thing. This means that everyone has a need for God. This is what they say. Everyone has a need for God. And God reveals himself to each man. And this is regardless of sanctifying grace. This is everybody. Everybody has a revelation, interior revelation from God. And therefore a religious experience. And that they develop this religious experience as it gets mixed in with their culture and various other influences, into a religion. So, therefore, everyone's religion proceeds ultimately from God. Everyone has an experience of God. But because there's no objective reality, we cannot know any, anything objective, then all religions are true because they all come from this experience and each one feels that his religion is true for him, which is totally in conformity with their philosophy. See, that, that if it conforms to what you think, then it's fine. See, then it's true. It's true for you. You, you find truth in it. So that is the, the second element. Now, just let me read a little bit from what he says here. But when natural theology has been destroyed, natural theology means what we know of God by reason, and the road to revelation closed by the rejection of the arguments of credibility. That is, we cannot know miracles and prophecies, which are how we prove the truth of the Catholic faith. See, that's all outside of our phenomena, I mean, our categories, you know, it's impossible. And all external revelation absolutely denied, because you know, how do we know that there's any that God revealed anything? It is clear that this explanation will be sought in vain outside of man himself. So, so the question is, how do you explain religion, therefore? The answer, he says, it must therefore be looked for in man. And since religion is a form of life, the explanation must certainly be found in the life of man. In this way is formulated the principle of religious imminence. So imminence means God is in you. Now this is regardless of supernatural grace, just 
just by nature, God is in you. That That is the first principle, and you have an experience of him. That is faith. So he says, religion, as noted above, belongs to this category, is due to a certain need or impulsion. So we need God. But speaking more particularly of life, it has its origin in a movement of the heart, which movement is called a sense, or a religious sense, or religious experience. Therefore, he says, as God is the object of religion, we must conclude that faith, which is the basis and foundation of all religion, must consist in a certain interior sense originating in a need of the divine. That's Bergoglio. See that faith is an experience of Christ, the meeting with Christ. He has said it over and over again. It it sets off bells in our heads because we're familiar with this encyclical and the nature of modernism. <laughs> you know, it, it is pure modernism. Uh, see, faith for the Catholic is the ascent of his intellect to truths which are revealed by God and which are proposed by the infallible Church of God for belief. See, so it is something that pertains to the intellect. It is objective. We adhere to the dogmas promulgated by the Catholic Church. That's the Catholic notion of faith. It's a supernatural virtue infused by God. For the modernist, there's nothing supernatural about it. Just anybody can and does have this need for the divine and therefore some sort of encounter with the divine and has a religious experience. And he says that this is an unconscious thing or subconscious thing. See, that this religious need and religious experience is in the subconscious. Right? And it is hidden and undetected. You see. And the purpose of the church, he'll say later, the purpose of, of evangelization is to help you find God in you, see, to bring out that subconscious and to show you that, in fact, you're quite religious. You see, you, you've discovered God in you. It's not to give you <laughs> the truth Just... of the Catholic faith. And that's, again, to quote Mr. Bergoglio, uh, he says, proselytism is pure nonsense. Proselytism means you go and you preach to the natives or whoever you're preaching to, uh, maybe even your own people in the parish, what the true faith is. These are the doctrines to which you must adhere. That's proselytism. Uh, it is to say to them, to them that the Catholic Church is the one true church and there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. That if you, through your own fault, are outside of the Catholic Church, you will necessarily go to hell. That's proselytism, and that is the Church's evangelization, and that's what it always did. And it did quite well, by the way. <laughs> Unlike the new evangelization, which uh, is falling flat on its face. And uh, is you know, really driving people away. Mm-hmm. In even South America, which is the, the last bastion for the Novus Ordo of any kind of success, quote unquote, people are, are leaving the faith in droves in, that, in the, that continent. I mean, Europe is already finished. I think you know, it's just done. And the United States is close behind because most of the people here who are avid about the Novus Ordo are people in their 60s and 70s. Uh, the young people really are not interested in it at all. 
It's just that in this country, before the council Sunday mass attendance, it was 75% in this country, which was much higher than it was in Europe. Uh, this country was much less affected by all of the problems of the 19th century. Catholics sort of minded their own business, went to mass and, and practiced their faith. They, they were not involved in revolutions and interfering governments and things like that. It was just a, a place to practice your faith. And, and so there was a, uh, and also, you know, people came over from Ireland and Italy where there was, and Germany too, uh, mostly, uh, where the, the faith was strong. And they were of lower classes or middle class people. So uh, it was the upper classes and the middle classes too, but most of the upper classes in Europe, which had abandoned the faith in the 18th century, 19th century. So these were workers, people who didn't have a good situation in Europe. They came over and they found a better life over here. But the lower classes in, in Europe were generally more pious, uh, more believing. So that, that's the reason why uh, you have a little bit more activity here in the Novus Ordo than you have in Europe. Europe is finished. So they, they look to places like South America and the Philippines, and, and you know here, there, and the other place, they, they have a little enthusiasm. <laughs> but it's quickly eroding. And, uh, it's all operating on the, I'll say for you, the petrol of the <laughs> reign of Pius XII. It, it, it is fueled by by the strength of the church, there was a tremendous momentum of a tremendous organization in 1958. Just like the Titanic uh, hitting the, the iceberg, there was an enormous momentum there because of the weight of that thing. And it was moving at about, you know, 20 some miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, maybe that 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 strike was terrible. So also you have a, a, an institution that is is moving at, at uh, you know that is an it's an enormous institution with an enormous and strong life in it. It takes a long time to break that down, but that's what it's it's moving on right now. It's it's on, as we say over here, it's on fumes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We <laughs> Tank is empty, <laughs> and and yeah. you know it's, it's running on vapors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so uh, yes. So. To, to get back to this idea of a personal religion, it's, well, it's, uh, I was going to say it's sort of pantheism. It's not really, it kind of is pantheism. Um, it is. And, it, and it explains why things like, for, for people listening who are still sort of within the Novus Order and wondering about it, it, it explains why the Catholic charismatic movement has, you know, <laughs> a contradiction in terms, but it explains why that has made such inroads. It also explains why, in the few Catholic churches that do actually have a individual confession rather than a sort of group absolution, why the priest might tell them to use their own consciences because it's their own personal experience with God. And, and who is he to impose uh, any kind of penance or any kind of moral guidance on them? St. Pius X then goes on and he, t he starts talking about history and the essentially the complete destruction of history and the idea of this religious sentiment, which is which is vital imminence, um, being the origin of all religion, it therefore necessarily changes with men's situation and surroundings and environment. That's all in paragraph paragraphs 9 and 10. 
Um, could you speak to something about, the, first of all, the destruction of history and what he means by that? Uh, well, first, let me say something about paragraph eight, uh, and that is from this, he says right at the end of eight, venerable brethren, springs that most absurd tenet of the modernists that every religion, according to the different aspect under which it is viewed, must be considered as both natural and supernatural. Right? So there's a confusion of the two orders. It proceeds from nature. It's not something that proceeds from grace. Uh, and But at the same time, it is some sort of supernatural experience of God. See, so it's important to understand that this confusion of the two orders, which is a uh, very, uh, very strong error in in uh, the modern world, is, is that the two orders, natural and supernatural, are confused. All right, going to paragraph nine, he's saying, uh, yes, that, that history is transformed by this, and that is that we cannot accept any supernatural event. See, if we look at it from the point of view of agnosticism, agnosticism cannot know nature, therefore it must uh, reject the miracle. How do we know? All we know is appearances. It's like the billiard ball. One hits the other, you know. And we don't know what's miraculous, what's not miraculous. We just see things and, and you know, just like mannequins in, in, a, <laughs> in a shop. You know, uh, that, that's all. We just, we, things happen. So that's their philosophy. So that means anything that is supernatural in sacred scripture or in history must be stripped of its supernatural qualities. And they will assign these to the enthusiasm of the evangelists or the historians, as the case may be, uh, or any eyewitness of anything supernatural. They will assign this to their enthusiasm about Christ or about their religion as some sort of uh, excess of, of, of sentiment concerning religion. But in fact, there's, there's, there's no such supernatural happening. All right, so he gives an example. He says an example must be sought in the person of Christ. In the person of Christ, they say science and history encounter nothing that is not human. Therefore, in virtue of the first canon deduced from agnosticism, where whatever there is in history suggestive of the divine must be rejected. Then, according to the second canon, the historical person of Christ was transfigured by faith. So he was turned into this God by faith. Therefore, everything that raises it above historical conditions must be removed. Lastly, the third canon, which lays down that the person of Christ has been disfigured by faith. See that he's been distorted and there's falsehood in, in the history of Christ. Requires that everything should be excluded, deeds, words, and all else that is not in strict keeping with his character, condition, and education and with the place and time in which he lived. All right, for example, uh, Mr. Bergoglio uh, has denied the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And he said that what happened, in fact, was that an electrical current went through the crowd, inspiring them to share what they had in their picnic baskets with other people who didn't have picnic baskets. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. It was and a lesson in sharing. 
And for, okay. for and for example, when he was found as a child in the temple, talking and astonishing the doctors of the law, as a twelve-year-old child, he couldn't possibly have done that. So that has to be dismissed. Yeah, that that is just uh, something that was made up in the third century, and uh, you know it, they they found him in the temple, probably playing games or something with other boys, and and took him home. You see that. <laughs> But, but but because he's been deified, then of course he was answering questions and putting questions to the doctors and so forth, uh, and uh, so that that's another myth that we believe. Uh, but you see, that's very good for a sermon. You see, we can preach about that because in the sermon we talk about the faith side. You know, see that that there is a, a religious experience, and and those things are very appealing to the religious experience side of modernism. See, so you can, you can, they, he says they sound wonderful. <laughs> they give the most pious sermons because they're speaking to that side. But then, in, you know, you find out, in fact, they don't believe a word of it is true. See, there's many, many other examples of Moses, of course, it, you know, didn't really cross the Red Sea. I don't know if you know that. There was a swamp and the wind was it was very windy that day and the wind blew the water out of their path so that they could you know get through more easily <laughs> but that is the standard <laughs> rational explanation of the crossing of the red sea even though it says in sacred scripture that the that there were two walls of water on each side of them it was just a passed. really strong wind it was just a yeah, really strong a, wind. That would be a wind that, like, the Earth has never seen. <laughs> I mean, that you could take the Red Sea and make two walls of water on both sides, and that there was enough water to drown the Egyptians. You know, so you have to, once you do stuff like that, you have to completely change sacred scripture. I mean, nothing in it survives. All of the symbolism of the escape from Egypt and the drowning of the Pharaoh uh, as, as a symbol of baptism, which is used in the sacred liturgy on Holy Saturday, uh, that's gone. You see. So it's all just fairy tale and myth. And, and uh, I mean, I won't, won't even get into what they do to Genesis. Genesis is, you know, uh, Ratzinger said that the, the, that the apostles had a resurrection experience. He said that in, I think, his last book, that it was a resurrection. He put out three books on Christ, the life of Christ. And he, the whole thing was a resurrection experience that they had. You see, that's typical of, of their philosophy, that, that you have an experience. You see, it, there's no objective resurrection of Christ. Uh, the traditional doctrine is that the soul of Christ was reunited to the body of Christ, and he rose body and soul uh, uh, very objectively and physically. No, the, the apostles had a uh, uh, had a resurrection experience. <laughs> okay, so it sounds like something you'd go to a theme park or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. and you know, that's that's all that matters is that he had that experience. Oh, they say that about Constantine too. Constantine, the emperor, had a vision of. Uh, of the cross in the sky, and, and you know, in this sign thou shalt conquer, and of course, well, that can't be true. You know, so, <laughs> the the modernists would say, what is important is that he thought he had that vision. See that okay. that's the important historical truth is that he was convinced that he had that vision. 
see what they do. I remember there was a story that uh, Bishop Kelly told us uh, when he was a seminarian in the diocesan seminary for the uh, Rockville Center, which is Long Island's um, diocese. He was in the seminary, and it was scripture class, and the professor said, uh, talking about the resurrection narrative, why did St. John say that there was an angel in the tomb? So Bishop Kelly <laughs> raised his hand, then he wasn't a bishop then, raised his hand and said, maybe there was an angel in the tomb. <laughs> <laughs> and and the the uh, scripture professor was very irritated by that answer. He was being flippant. How could you say that there's an angel in the tomb? <laughs> See, it, that that's modernism on wheels. So it infected everything, particularly after the council. They, uh, but they were very strong before the council. Then that's how the council took place. Was it was their strength before the council, and the fact that they were able to hijack it through the uh, approval and help of John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth, who were both okay. Oh well, very clearly. Is there any, anything further you'd like to comment on anything at paragraph 10 before we move on to paragraph 11, which is the origin of dogmas and how the modernists view it? Well, notice he says, and yet, venerable brethren, he's talking about this. Yeah, there's a bunch of important things in number 10. He says, for religions in the modernist system are mere developments of this religious sense, nor is the Catholic religion an exception it is quite on a level with the rest. You see, there you have ecumenism. Yeah, absolutely. If it all comes from the depths of the subconscious, well, how are we any better than anyone else? For it was engendered, he says, by the process of vital imminence and by no other way in the consciousness of Christ, who was a man of the choicest nature, whose like has never been nor will be. So in the modernist system, Christ was a person who had a really great religious experience and gave his religious experience to to his followers. But he was just a man. He says, in hearing these things, we shudder indeed at so great an audacity of assertion and so great a sacrilege. And yet, venerable brethren, these are not merely the foolish babblings of unbelievers. And this is important. There are Catholics, yea, and priests too, who say these things openly and they boast that they are going to reform the church by these ravings. There you have it. There it is. There's Vatican II. He says the question is no longer one of the old error, which claimed for human nature a sort of right to the supernatural. That's Jansenism. It has gone far beyond that and has reached the point where it is affirmed that our most holy religion in the man Christ as in us, emanated from nature spontaneously and of itself. That's Vatican II. Vatican II's fundamental error is the primacy of the conscience over dogma. We see that in the decree on ecumenism and the decree on religious liberty. That conscience is supreme and that dogma must submit to conscience. That is the the kernel of Vatican II, and it's all rooted in modernism, that the objective dogma is merely a, a way of expressing this internal religious experience, and therefore everyone has a right to his own religious experience. 
therefore all religions are more or less good. And everyone has a right to practice and express his religion. That's the decree on ecumenism and the decree on religious liberty. And we see this in Mr. Bergoglio, too, that, that he hates dogma. He's constantly ripping down dogma and people who are rigid and, and all sorts of you know, evil things, as he says. That's because he's a thoroughgoing modernist and, and uh, enemy of the Catholic Church. Moving on to the origin of dogmas in paragraph 11, he starts talking about how modernists believe dogmas are actually formed and the necessity of the intellect's involvement in faith by the pondering of one's own faith. Could you speak a little bit about this and anything else you think is sort of important from paragraph 11? Yes, the dogma is something that comes not from above, as the Catholic Church would teach, revelation, but it comes from below. Uh, we all have a religious experience, and we think about this religious experience, and we come up with ways of expressing our experience, and each person has a way of expressing it, and this is known as dogma. When they discover that they have similar dogmas, they form a religion. And that's how religions uh, take their shape. So, you know, th this experience is conditioned by many things. It could be that you're Northern European or that you're, you're in Africa or you're in India. And so many other factors will uh, work into your experience of God. Uh, uh, you might be an Aztec. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> we won't talk about their religion. So dogma is simply the way you express your religious experience, and that is in some way crystallized and officialized by some religion to which you belong. That's, that's the modernist notion of dogma. So it is really just a, an outgrowth of, of the religious experience. So you, you see that how, how that paves the way to ecumenism. Now, the modernists will say, well, not all religions are as good as another, uh, because you know, some have better dogmas than others, uh, that, you know, sometimes bad things creep into the religious experience. And so they would say that the Catholic Church has the fullness, but the other religions have partial uh, success, so to speak, in their religious experience. And so the, the Catholic Church has the fullness, and that's how they excuse themselves of religious indifferentism. You see, we're not saying that everyone's the same or that everyone's equal. Definitely the Catholic Church has the best religious experience and the best dogma. And, and uh, you know, so it's like we have a booth in the Congress of Religions and we're saying, uh, you know, come to us because, you know, we, we really have the best uh, situation. <laughs> uh, that, that's the only way that you, and that's totally in conformity with the present modernist new evangelization. You just suggest to people that they, they come in. You see, you, you show the Catholic wares, so to speak, and uh, hope that people buy. <laughs> There's no idea of proselytizing. That is to tell them that they must make a move from their false religion to the Catholic faith, uh, and that the Catholic faith is the one true faith, and there's no other true faith on the face of the earth. Um, so the, the, uh, so that's why uh, Ratzinger, for example, back in the 90s, put out a document saying that the 
uh, Greek Orthodox and other schismatics were particular churches. That is, that they were part of the Church of Christ, although not in full communion yet. And then called the Anglicans ecclesial communities. They don't get the title of church because, he says, they don't have valid sacraments. So they get ecclesial communities, uh, which you know, caused a ruckus uh, among the Anglicans. But nonetheless, all of the bad theology is there. They're not anything. I mean, a, a false church has no license to exist, certainly not from God. So where right. does it get its, its <laughs> license I, to exist? <laughs> I really don't care about what the Anglicans think. It's of absolutely <laughs> no importance to me whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> but, so, you know, go ahead. I was simply going to say, he... He talks about this uh, sort of thing in paragraph 12 as well. He, he, again, he talks about the origin uh, and nature of dogma. He says exactly um, this is exactly what we've been talking about. If all the churches are more or less equal, he says, and I quote, these formulas, which is their, essentially their version of dogmas, these ideas that they've cooked up in their own heads, these formulas have no other purpose than to furnish the believer with a means of giving an account of his faith to himself it's all entirely self-centered it's 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 narcissistic yes yes i need god and uh i uh i have this conception of god and it's all personal and uh has no objectivity at all and and admits of everybody else's religion i mean there's not a single religion on the face of the earth which would not conform to this this idea that's why John Paul II praised voodooism. Uh, that was back oh, a long time ago. Uh, he went and visited the voodoo priests and, and praised voodooism. I mean, it's not, not a single religion, uh, not a single aberration, which would in any way be exempt from this. And uh, he also apologized for the French missionaries when he went to Canada uh, because they imposed the you know, European uh, ways upon the Indians and all. And what they did was they taught them how to clean up. They lived in filth, absolute disgusting filth. And one of the things they did, I mean, despite, I'm rather, in addition to giving them the Catholic faith, they taught them how to, to keep clean and, and be uh, free of disease and, and every other sort of thing. And they also taught them good morals. And uh, they lifted the Indians up. But, of course, that's all politically incorrect to say that now, because they had such a wonderful uh, religion. Was it you that told me that uh, that Cortez, when he uh, arrived with the Aztecs, he was offered two human hands to eat? Oh, no, that wasn't me. I yes. was I, I was going to mention, uh, actually, it was something, it was a sermon that, that you had uh, that you preached years ago, and you said the North American Indians used to dig up the bodies of their dead braves and hang it in the top of the tent. And this is what uh, Father uh, Bray Berth would endure. Yes, that he uh, he had to... Uh, and these tents were absolutely filthy. They lived in their own excrement, the Indians, and they also would swap wives commonly. So he had to, for the first winter that he was there, live in one of those, what they call longhouses, where the dead bodies were hanging, 
and where the men and women were acting like animals in front of him. And he had to live among them that way. Later, in the spring, he insisted that they build him a house. So he lived in a house after that. But uh, he he had to endure that. And, you know, the sanitary conditions were beyond description. They're so horrible that it's just, you know... <laughs> and so, you know, these people are living... Even animals don't, you know, live in their own excrement. And uh, yet, you know, this is the 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 wonderful civilization that, that we destroyed, the Europeans destroyed. But again, you know, that was a part of their religious experience and the witch doctors and, you know, who would invoke Satan in order to, you know, they're basically Satanist priests. Uh, uh, that was, uh, you know, that wonderful religion that they had too. Uh, you're, you're seeing a rise of Satanism in this country. There was a statue of of Bahomet, which is the, the word for Satan, uh, erected in uh, Detroit this very year. Big statue that was placed in uh, downtown Detroit of Satan talking to two children. Hmm. I mean, that's a religious experience. Well, uh, I I suppose it is. It's not not one I particularly want, but uh, I suppose it is for, for some people. <laughs> I think I think so, uh, I point that out that there's really no limit on it. I think um, at that point I shall break there to say we would like to remind you that you are listening to Papers Against Modern Errors. Uh, this is Pashendi Part One on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Minnesota Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today, we're discussing Pope St. Pius X's great encyclical, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, on the program of Modernists. We want to remind you that this Pope's Against the Modern Era show is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.com. So the North American Indians and the Satanists, they're all having their own religious experience, and they all have their own version of dogmas, which popes and Pius attempt to call formulas. But in paragraph 13, he goes on to say that these formulas change. They they necessarily change, um, that dogma is not fixed. And we see this all the time in, in the Vatican II sect. Could you could you elaborate a little bit on that on this sort of general theme of, of evolving dogma? Uh, yes, evolving dogma is part and parcel of the modernist system. The religious experience is conditioned by our our surroundings, uh, historical surroundings, geographical surroundings, cultural surroundings, and therefore, as these things change, especially the historical conditions. So, and as human beings change, so their dogmas ought, ought to change because their religious experience is changing. So the dogmas are not, you know, fixed things or stones, as the modernists say, which come down from heaven and hit your head. That, that's a typical modernist denigration of dogma, but they are uh, expressions of how we feel about God. And the purpose of the church uh, and any religion, is to organize these experiences, get a reading of what people are thinking and, and how they're acting, and change the dogmas according as uh, as it is needed, as, uh, you know, to re- reflect the 
general religious experience of the people. And that's, again, precisely what Mr. Bergoglio has done. Uh, he Early in his so-called pontificate, he, he put out that idea that we have to poll people, we have to find out what they think, and that uh, we need to you know change things according as, as they think differently from what we think. Uh, effectively, I'm not quoting him, but that, that was the idea. And so we'll see in October of this uh, year, 2015, uh, uh, I think we're going to see some very radical changes with regard to adultery and with regard to birth control and uh, and sodomitic relationships. I think we'll see some very uh, strong evolution on those points. So it, it's just uh, uh, the evolution of dogma is not only the fact that it does happen, but that it should happen, is a natural, logical conclusion from everything we have said about the religious experience being the origin of religion. Um, uh, So uh, he says, what is necessary is that the religious sense, with some modification when needful, should vitally assimilate them, that means the dogmas, In other words, it is necessary that the primitive formula be accepted and sanctioned by the heart, and similarly the subsequent work from which are brought forth the secondary formulas, that is when you think about it a little bit more, must proceed under the guidance of the heart. Hence it comes that these formulas, in order to be living, should be and should remain adapted to the faith and to him who believes. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a viable religion unless you are changing your dogmas. That is, that is so much a part of Vatican II, that the Catholic Church must constantly morph itself, if that's an English word, I'm not sure it's popularly yes. used, but uh, yes. in order to, to respond to, to humanity, that even Vatican II now, being 50 years old, is passé, that there are other things that need to be done now. That that was only a moment in the evolution. Now there are other things that we have to do. So he says, in view of the fact that the character and lot of dogmatic formulas are so unstable, it is no wonder that the modernists should regard them so lightly and in such open disrespect and have no consideration or praise for anything but the religious sense and and for the religious life. That doesn't mean nuns and priests. That means the life of the, you know, the interior religious life of the human being. That's Bergoglio again. The dogma is terrible. People who insist on dogmas are evil people. It's that encounter with Jesus. That's what matters. So that's why he extolled that uh, Pentecostalist bishop from England who later died. You know, he was one with him, and then he got a Catholic funeral because it all doesn't matter. There is no one true church. There is no one true dogma. The dogmatic orthodoxy has collapsed. Nobody cares today if somebody denies a dogma. He came out and said there's no Catholic God. Nobody cares. <laughs> you know, so yeah. what? He said uh, there, there, he actually said there is no God. There is no God. There are only persons. And who cares? I mean, that's a Trinitarian heresy, denying the unity of God. That means there's only there's three gods. But nobody cares about dogma. Vatican II has destroyed the notion of dogma. Nobody cares. 
He could deny anything. He could, as I have said many times, come out onto the balcony of St. Peter's with no clothes on and say, God doesn't exist. Christ is not God. He could do a litany of heresies and no one would care. Because no, they would just say, Viva il Papa, and he's standing there in St. Peter's, and you know, who cares that he has no clothes on? You know, I mean, it, it, it's finished. Any kind of sensitivity to dogma is finished. It has been destroyed by Vatican II, and it's all predicted here in this very important document of Pius X. So, unless you would like to uh, point out anything else in paragraph 13, my lord, I'd like to move on to paragraph 14, where he talks about the modernist as a believer. Well, just, he says in 13, in this way, with consummate audacity, notice he says, they criticize the church as having strayed from the true path by failing to distinguish between the religious and moral sense of formulas and their surface meaning and by clinging vainly and tenaciously to meaningless formulas while religion itself is allowed to go to ruin. The organizers of Vatican II, that describes them perfectly, that the church is caught up in the Middle Ages and it is killing itself by this undue attachment to these dogmatic formulas. Uh, religion itself, meaning the religious experience and, the, and this vital religion that they are talking about, is going to ruin because these dogmatic formulas are holding it down. Very important. It's, it's all very prophetic. So, yes, going on to 14, he says, we have considered the modernist as a philosopher. Now, if we proceed to consider him as a believer and seek to know how the believer, according to modernism, is marked off from the philosopher. It must be observed that although the philosopher recognizes the reality of the divine as the object of faith, still this reality is not to be found by him but in the heart of the believer as an object of feeling and affirmation. So it's more of the same, uh, emphasizing the fact that religion comes from inside. In this paragraph, he, he also mentioned if religion comes from inside, he also says that it opens the door to atheism, because what if you just don't have a religious experience? What if you just don't yeah. have one? You just think, well, I don't have a religious experience, so I'm not really convinced there is any kind of deity out there at all. Yes, yes, it makes perfect sense. If everything is personal to you. So if you don't have a, 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 an experience of God, well, that's okay, too. And again, Bergoglio saying to the atheists that they have a path to heaven because they're in good conscience. Which makes perfect sense according to this, what what he's saying is that, yes, they would be in good conscience according to modernism because they don't have that experience. It's not their experience. And God doesn't hold it against them. So every sort of aberration, including atheism itself, is promoted by this system and, and has value. So he asked the atheist, what did he say, to pray for him or something? But if they can't do that, then send him good vibes. I think that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, I think he did, yeah. <laughs> but that the atheists can hope for heaven too because they're in good conscience. That's contrary to St. Paul. You are able to know through reason the existence of God. They're not in good conscience. We know as Catholics that every single person is sent the grace to save their soul. We know yeah. that. How can he possibly say they're in good conscience? Well, he's a modernist. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's the answer, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you're you're assuming that he's a Catholic. That's the problem. Uh, yeah, and that's the problem with, with uh, so many people. Uh, you know, he has the white cassock on. He lives in St. Peter's Basilica. They assume that he is a Catholic. The man is not a Catholic. Uh, and uh, the sooner people understand that, the better. Uh, he is an alien to the Catholic faith and has inserted himself into uh, a situation in which he appears to be something that he is not. So, yes, and here uh, in this paragraph, he says, what is to prevent such experiences, referring to the religious experience, uh, being found in any religion? In fact, that they are so is maintained by not a few. On what grounds can modernists deny the truth of an experience affirmed by a follower of Islam? Will they claim a monopoly of true experiences for Catholics alone? There's your decree on ecumenism. The modernists do not deny, he says, but actually maintain, some confusedly, others frankly, that all religions are true. St. Pius X again. That they cannot feel otherwise is obvious. It's perfectly logical in their system because it all is all based on religious experience and dogmas are, are the, the effect of religious experience. And he says, what, what is amazing is that there are Catholics and priests who we would fain believe abhor such enormities and yet act as if they fully approved of them. For they lavish such praise and bestow such public honor on the teachers of these errors as to convey the belief that their admiration is not meant merely for the persons who are perhaps not devoid of a certain merit, but rather for the sake of the errors which these persons openly profess and which they do all in their power to propagate. That, that is a shot against what we call modernizers. You see, in this crisis of, of, of the church, which is still going on, but which began at, in Pius X's reign, or at least became apparent in his reign, there were two classes of what we might call modernists. One was the hardcore modernists, like Terrell in England, and Loisy in France, and uh, Buonaiuti in Italy. And they were relatively few. Uh, those were the big names, but there were many others. Uh, but those, they were relatively few. The biggest danger were the modernizers, and that is people who didn't necessarily share what these modernists were saying, didn't necessarily agree, but who praised them and favored them, were soft on them because of their scholarship or some other... They typically were scholars, uh, and, and they were impressed by them. And many times these people were prelates. And, for example, John XXIII, as a young priest, was teaching church history in uh, the Diocese of Bergamo. And he was using Louis Duchesne for a, for a textbook, and he was denounced to Rome for using Louis Duchesne. Louis Duchesne was on the index because he was a modernist church historian. And there in Rome, he said to Cardinal Delay, oh, I haven't even read Duchesne. That was a big lie. Those were actually more dangerous people than the modernists themselves, the modernizers, and very often prelates who, who would be soft on these people. And Pius X had an abhorrence of them. 
that is the famous incident, which actually came up in the process of canonization, where a bishop came to him and said, you're going too hard on these modernists. And Pius X said, what would you like me to treat them with soft soap? He said, the, the modernists deserve to be beaten with fists. And when you have a, a, an opponent, you strike him wherever you can, and you do not count how many blows you have given him. That was the response. Even Cardinal Mario Val told him that he was being a bit too hard, and he regarded yes, the Cardinal but, as a saint. Yes, there was a, a you know, a, a, I don't know of a movement, but there was a sentiment among even those who were in the anti-modernist camp that he was going too hard, and yet Pius X protected uh, the Sodalitium Pianum, which was the CIA, or what is it, M5, of, of the yeah. church which was seeking out these people and, you know, effectively destroying them, that is, removing them and denouncing them to the authorities and destroying them as, in their careers, you know, where they were, they were just taken out of seminaries and destroyed. <laughs> their effectiveness was destroyed. Uh, there weren't too many excommunications. Rona Yuthi was excommunicated. The hardened modernists were excommunicated. But he dealt with the with the lesser modernists uh, by putting them in positions of, of virtually no no authority and no influence. For example, the the rector of the seminary in New York was taken out, and the chaplain of the of the fire department was put in as the rector of the seminary. So, this is give you an example. That seminary was infected with modernism, biblical modernism, particularly. So, but that happened a lot. They, there would be denunciations. Seminarians would be enlisted to take notes and and to make the you know, denunciation to known persons. Nobody knew who was in the Sodalitium Piano. It was right. a secret organization. But you you would make these sort of CIA types of contacts <laughs> and your denunciation would get to the right sources and uh and and Pius X maintained that right to the end it was Benedict the 15th that did away with it it's in his first encyclical uh which i think is the beginning of the end and the beginning of our problems is that Benedict the 15th who was elected as an anti-Pius X did away with the measures that Pius X was taking and which were efficacious in rooting out the modernists uh, yeah. And I think that's why we have the problems that we have today. Is there anything else you'd like to pick out from paragraph 14, my lord, before we go on to uh, paragraph 15, in which Pope St. Pius talks about the religious experience and tradition? No, we're done with 14, I think. Uh, he says in 15, tradition, as understood by the modernists, is a communication with others of an original experience through preaching by means of an, the intellectual formula. So again, the Catholic notion of tradition is that our blessed Lord and the apostles said things that were never written down, but that they have been preached by the Catholic Church universally and have been recorded in other ways, that is, either by the fathers or by the sacred liturgy or other, it could be even monuments or, or devotions or whatnot, uh, but that, that these traditions uh, have evidence and they and, and that tradition is uh, as much a source of divine revelation as sacred scripture is. As a matter of fact, 
it's more of a source in this sense that there is more in tradition than there is in sacred scripture. And for the modernists, it's not something that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord or from the apostles, but rather is something that proceeds from this subconscious experience and which is developed into an intellectual formula. And this is, just like sacred scriptures, something that is conditioned by its time and by culture and everything else, and therefore which has no permanent value. It, it, it merely must be subject to all of the interpretation that the modernists place on every, every piece of, of revelation. Uh, he says, sometimes this communication of religious experience takes root and thrives, at other times it withers at once and dies. For the modernists, to live is a proof of truth, since for them life and truth are one and the same thing. Very typical modernist doctrine. Uh, also, we see that in Mergolio. So if something survives, it's a proof of truth. We have to put a footnote here and say the Society of St. Pius X has the same idea. And that is, if a truth survives the centuries, then it's considered to be a dogma. If it doesn't survive, then it isn't. And that's, they are very, very close to the modernists on that. That's what they call ordinary universal magisterium, something that survives the test of time. But if people just forget about something that the universal church has taught, well, then it, it's not really a, a dogma. Uh, that is a very serious error on their part. And he says, thus, we are once more led to infer that all existing religions are equally true, for otherwise they would not survive. <laughs> you see, yeah. so if you have life, if you have success uh, as a religion, well, that's a sign that, that you are favored by God because you have survived, that you, you live. And conversely, if you die out, that's a, that's a bad sign. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Existing religion is necessarily true. So going to 16, he sets down the modernist idea of the conflict of faith and science. And now the Catholic idea is that because both are true, in other words, true science can never contradict true faith. True faith can never contradict true science because science is merely the discovery of what God has made and the faith it comes from what God has revealed. So, obviously, it's not possible that there be any contradiction. The um, modernist has a whole other idea, and that is that he lives in two different worlds. There's the philosopher-scientist in him, and then there's the man of faith, so that he could deny one thing uh, on the level of science and philosophy. On the other side, he could believe it by faith. So he says, hence, it should be further asked whether Christ has wrought real miracles and made real prophecies, whether he rose truly from the dead and descended into heaven. The answer of agnostic science will be in the negative and the answer of faith in the affirmative. Yet there will not be on that account any conflict between them, because you can deny in one area and affirm in the other. So, so they can... He's going to say they, they can sound beautiful in the pulpit because they're talking as on the faith side. He says, for it will be denied by the philosopher as a philosopher speaking to philosophers and considering Christ only in historical reality 
and will be affirmed by the believer as a believer, speaking to believers, and considering the life of Christ as lived again by the faith and in the faith. So that's not a problem for them, you know, to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde concerning the faith and science. And in the next in the next paragraph, he goes on to say, in reality, science and faith are not separated, but in fact, faith is subject to science in the modernist, in the modernist yes. approach. Yes, yes, that the the real truth for the modernist lies in science and philosophy, and that faith is a something uh, accidental to it and subject to it. It, it makes us feel good, and, and you know it's a totally internal thing that answers a need that we have. So you can't consider it in a, in a serious way, and it, it can could never contradict science. And science must have precedence over faith, whatever faith might say against it. Science must have precedence over it. So for that reason, they deny everything that's miraculous in sacred scripture and. Uh, anything they find objectionable in dogma, it all must be subject to the acts of what they would consider philosophy and science. He goes on to condemn this idea that faith is subject to science. And in fact, the whole encyclical, we haven't mentioned some of them, is littered with condemnations from from the previous popes and the First Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. Here he cites Pius IX and Gregory the Ninth. Before going on to talk about the method of the methods of modernists, I wondered if you could just sort of off topic, but speak briefly about why we should really take note to the amount of condemnations in in this in this encyclical. It, they, they they are truly all over the place. Well, uh, I don't think there's any encyclical at all, uh, perhaps no document that contains so many condemnations as this document. He is really pulling the alarm for the church, that this is a a very, very serious problem for the church, and it has to be eliminated and exterminated. This this document has to be studied very, very clearly. He's using very strong language in it. He said a little bit further up in 15, for example, there is yet another element in this part of their teaching which is absolutely contrary to Catholic truth. See, that, that means it's Contrary to faith, you see, he's, he's, he's calling it heresy. He's not saying this is a, an erroneous opinion or something that you know, people are misled. Uh, if, uh, <laughs> this is really bad, in other words. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it's so prophetic. I mean, this is a, it's like reading the prophet Isaiah concerning the, the Messiah. <laughs> Even more than that, it, it is so prophetic. Uh, of what is what we are living through now, that that it, it tells you everything. It, it it points out everything that happened. That in the three pontificates uh, from 1914 to 1958, these very people whom he is condemning so so strongly in this encyclical managed to get into the driver's seat of the Catholic Church. That's what happened, and we are living through the nightmare for now 50 years, of this evil doctrine that has overturned everything in the Catholic Church, and that there is no compromise with this thing. You know, we cannot see the, these intruders that, that have 
repudiated the Catholic faith and who conform to everything that he's describing in this encyclical, we cannot see them as the authority of the Church. They are wolves, and, and we want nothing to do with them and should have nothing to do with them. What is deeply infecting the traditional movement is some idea that we can compromise with these people, that we, we can in some way eke out a Catholic uh, existence under their tutelage and government. And, and that is poison to what we're doing, and certainly is incompatible with everything that Pius X is saying here. I mean, these are not merely misled Catholics. These are people who intend the destruction of the whole Church. So, you know, we're going to see soon, I think, the reconciliation of the Society of St. Pius X with the modernists. Yeah, that so means, you know, at least you know now in their present position, they are putting up some sort of resistance to them when they pass over into the world of the modernists. That means the only thing left will be the Sedevacantus who are reduced to small numbers because the Society of St. Pius X, having as they did all of the prestige of Archbishop Lefebvre, scooped up everybody over the past 40 years who was in any way reacting to the changes and poisoned their minds with the idea that in some way you can have a compromise with this modernism, that you can live with modernists and call them good Catholics. And that's why I wrote that article years ago, uh, I think 22 years ago, The Mountains of Jelbaway, because I compare what happened on the mountain of Jelbaway to what the Society of St. Pius X is doing. On the mountain of Jelbaway, Saul led the, his whole army, and it says in sacred scripture, the, the, uh, the strong ones of Israel, in other words, the, the best soldiers of Israel, led them into a horrifying defeat, slaughter on the top of, of Mount Jelbaway, and David, upon hearing uh, about it, uh, cursed the mountain and said that it should remain dry and barren. That's a, what the Society of St. Pius X is about to do, is to lead everybody into a battle with the Philistine uh, in which they will be slaughtered. They will become themselves the Philistines. Uh, yeah. it, it's a terrible thing. And uh, so I think that the heads up is in this encyclical that, that St. Pius X is, is very clear that, that these things are condemned and his language is unmistakable. Uh, so he, he says in paragraph 17, the modernists completely invert the parts and of them may be applied the words which another of our predecessors, Gregory IX, addressed to some theologians of his time, some among you puffed up like bladders with the spirit of vanity, strive by profane novelties, to cross the boundaries fixed by the fathers, twisting the meaning of the sacred text to the philosophical teaching of the rationalists, not for the profit of their hearer, but to make a show of science. These men, led away by various and strange doctrines, turned the head into the tail and forced the queen to serve the handmaid. That's a mm. quote from Gregory the Ninth. So he could not be stronger than he is. And in that sense, the encyclical is quite different from others that other popes have written. Uh, usually popes are, are subdued in their language, but he is not at all subdued in this. <laughs> no, you couldn't, you couldn't accuse him of being a shrinking violet, could you? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Moving on to paragraph 18, then. He starts talking about the dual role of both apparently Catholic and rationalist in the modernist me- in the modernist methods. What particular parts of these paragraphs would you like to pick out and discuss? Well, uh, he says, thus in their books, one finds some things which might well be approved by a Catholic, but on turning over the page, one is confronted by other things which might well have been dictated by a rationalist. Uh, How true that is. Uh, Ratzinger was great for that. They were all very good. All of those radicals of Vatican II were wonderful for that. Vatican II itself was like that. You read a paragraph that sounds like something that Thomas Aquinas wrote. Then the next paragraph is, but, and then it's uh, some awful principle that they are enunciating. Uh, in 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 uh, the books of Ratzinger, there are some paragraphs which are very nice, uh, uh, very uh, very you know edifying. And then the next page, you have a denial of the resurrection of the dead, or you have denial of of Christ's resurrection, or, or uh, so the uh, you know he has them all all described. I mean, it's like shining a light in a dark alley and looking at all the rats in the garbage cans. You know they. <laughs> They, they, there's not a single one of them uh, whose eyes are not shining back into the flashlight. You know, they're, they're all caught eating the garbage in the can. And, and uh, so, it, you know, he has them, uh, he has analyzed them perfectly. He says, they are wont to display a manifold contempt for Catholic doctrines, for the Holy Fathers, for the ecumenical councils, for the ecclesiastical magisterium, which is all true. Uh, and should they be taken to task for this, they complain that they are being deprived of their liberty. Oh, yes, that was uh, theological freedom. That was the, the cry during the 50s and the 60s that, oh, you know, we're, oh, we're oppressed by this heavy <laughs> hand of Rome. And uh, so, uh, and that's how they got ahead was that, uh, sorry to say, but Pius XII did not, suppress them sufficiently and, and, and let them off the hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was, there was weakness there. And uh, they, Ratzinger should have been excommunicated as a young priest in, in the 1950s. And Rahner as well. The, the whole lot of them should have been excommunicated and thrown out of the church. Uh, and uh, Teilhard de Chardin. But famous was the, the, I think I mentioned in another show where... Uh, Cardinal Taviani begged Pius XII to excommunicate Teilhard de Chardin, and Pius XII said, no, I think, you know, with time, he'll come around, and uh, I don't want to go too hard on him, you know. That's fatal. That very attitude is fatal and has been fatal, and we are living in the misery that we're living in now because of that attitude. And Pius X did not have that attitude. He protected us. Uh, And, you know, people have to understand that. No, the modernists, the modernists simply didn't share Pius XII's reticence in pushing their, their views forward. No, no, they were bold as brass. Uh, but uh, Pius X again was Pius XII was um, uh, again a, a person who admired, perhaps even more than Leo XIII, scholarship, science. So he was in awe of a Teilhard de Chardin. He was in awe of these modern theologians who 
uh, you know, did did a good deal of academic work. I mean, they were intelligent and they knew their stuff, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, he. I mean, a Pisces author would be a whole other show. But, uh, yeah. The the softness and hesitancy of those popes after Pius X is what gave us the problem we have today. Mm-hmm. So he starts talking about the modernist as a theologian, and he says actually the process is very simple. They hold as a principle that the principle of faith is imminent. This principle is God, and therefore God is imminent in man, which is what we what we mentioned earlier. It is out-and-out pantheism. There's, there's no other word for it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Here he's saying that the formulas, the dogmatic formulas, are only symbolic. That is, that they they represent only the religious experience and uh, that they have a purpose, but they should not be adhered to as if they were set in stone. He says uh, they would also have the believer make use of the formulas only as far as they are helpful to him, for they are given to be a help and not a hindrance, with proper regard, however, for the social respect due to formulas which the public magisterium has deemed suitable for expressing the common consciousness until such time as the magisterium shall provide otherwise. So he's saying that the theologians should not go too fast, you know, that you have to have a certain social outward respect for the the standing doctrines and and creeds and so forth, but you know just go slowly and and with respect, and that's exactly what they did. You know they they would eat away a little bit, just like a mouse on a piece of cheese. You know just here and there in the other place. They they knew when to pull their heads in to the to the wall when the cat came. You know, and <laughs> and uh, when they they had gone too far. Uh, uh, it was, uh, he has them all figured out. They they intend to take over the church by stealth, and not not by uh, a siege on uh, you know outside of its walls and by uh, flinging uh, a hot shot into the, <laughs> to the, the walls of the church, but but they want to take it over by stealth by means of a, a, a Trojan horse. And so they have to be careful, and, and that's exactly what he's saying here, is this is, this is the way they act. Mm-hmm. Um, Rahner would call this theological anthropology. That was so typical in the 1960s, I remember <laughs> it. Uh, that, that man is necessarily theological. And, uh, and, and again, Pius X says this, that some understand it in the sense that God working in man is more intimately present in him than man is even in himself. So it's a form of pantheism. See that? Uh, God working in man, as if he's yeah. It's uh, and history therefore is a is an outgrowth of God working in man. It's all there. All the new theology is there. The next paragraph, he starts talking about something that he calls divine permanence, and he uses an example which. He talks about the church and the, the sacraments, according to the modernist mm-hmm. ideas, would not be founded by Christ himself. He says it's forbidden by agnosticism, imminence, evolution, and history. What, what exactly does he mean by divine permanence? What is that? That there is a continuation of this 
this religious experience and that it grows like a tree. And so, again, it's subject to all of the uh, principles of evolution. Uh, he says, uh, all Christian consciences were, they affirm, in a manner virtually included in the conscience of Christ, as the plant is included in the seed, but as the branches live the life of the seed, so too all Christians are to be said to live the life of Christ. But the life of Christ, according to faith, is divine, so too is the life of Christians. And if this life produced in the course of the ages, both the Church and the sacraments it is quite right to say that their origin is from Christ and is divine. So that's the way they would explain the divine origin of the Church and the divine origin of the sacraments. Not that Christ set them down and defined them, but the Christ was the institutor of a religious experience for people and that the religious experience produced these things, the Church and the sacraments. And in that sense, they are divine. In the same way, he says, the Holy Scripture is divine and dogmas are divine, that they proceed from this divine seed in human beings and, and, and are divinized in that way. See, it's a whole other way. So they can say, oh, yes, the Church is divine. Oh, the sacraments were, were instituted by Christ. But they give a totally different meaning to it from what the Church gives to it. Mm-hmm. That's what he means by that. Before we move on to dogma and the sacraments, I think it would be a a good place to wrap the show up there. As we close out this particular episode, I'd just like to remind viewers that we've been covering Pashendi Dominici Gregis. And I want to thank you, Lordship. Thank you very much for explaining some of the concepts in this very important encyclical. Is there anything else you would like to comment on before we close out this episode? No, I think uh, I'll save that for the end, uh, but we have made some uh, peripheral comments uh, so far, uh, and but there will be more as time goes on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think we'll just uh, hit the hold button right now. <laughs> okay. I'm losing well, my voice anyway. I've been talking so much. Yeah, please go and have a glass of water, my lord. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, once again, my lord, Thank you. Thank you so very much for your time. And we will talk to you again um, on this encyclical next month as we continue this series. May God bless you and all the teaching staff and seminarians at the seminary. Thank you very much. If you have any questions for His Lordship or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at modernerrors at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments. We would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.